Mr. Cuban, thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. I'd like to talk a bit about your story. Uh, I'd like to discuss your battles with addiction. Tell me a bit about your history. Uh, well, I'm a, I'm a lawyer by trade, although I'm a tapped out lawyer. I no longer practice. Uh, born and raised in Pittsburgh, middle of three boys. People know my older brother, Mark, uh, Shark Tank and Mavs. And then I have a younger brother, Jeff. Went to Penn State undergrad, University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Uh, took the Pennsylvania bar after graduation and passed it by some miracle. But I, I never, I've never practiced in PA. I'm, uh, you know, I took the bar July 1986, was it? And then Labor Day 1986, I took the Greyhound bus to Dallas, and uh, you know, moved in with my brother Mark, and uh, you know, took the pay, failed the failed the Texas bar multiple times. You know, drug and alcohol played a, a role in all that. Discovered cocaine in 1987. Uh, then cocaine and alcohol basically took over my life. And then and uh, uh, went to jail. Got DWI in 1990. Uh, three failed marriages uh, revolving around drugs and alcohol. Then in uh, 2005, I uh, became suicidal and was very fortunate to have close family where they uh, intervened and took me to a psychiatric facility. Uh, but that wasn't, I was still wasn't ready for recovery. And then uh, I was back out. I lost my career as a lawyer. I uh, went to work for my brother. That didn't work out too well either. And then, uh, and then the Easter weekend, 2007, I uh, made a second trip back to the same psychiatric facility after drug and alcohol induced blackout. And that's when I finally uh, turned things around and began my recovery journey. And you said about yourself that one of the reasons behind this was that you never had a purpose. How important is that? Uh, I mean, I, I, I think uh, I refer to it more in terms of identity. I mean, purpose is important, right? But with purpose comes identity. I never really had a self-identity. I, uh, I was bullied severely as a kid. Or my identity was negative. Uh, you know, what I saw in the mirror was just awful to me. I was bullied severely as a kid, uh, physically assaulted. I was a, a, a heavy kid, uh, bordering on obese. And, uh, the you know, at school, although this was before, obviously, this was before the internet, you know, when, when bullying, when bullying meant, you know, going viral meant 15 kids in the lunchroom knew something had happened. And uh, so that really shaped my identity. And... Uh, Everything I did moving forward was to change this horrific image I saw in the mirror of this fat pig, as I was so often called. And uh, and because of that, that was my purpose, right? My purpose was always to not see and not feel negatively about myself. So I ended up, uh, every, my behaviors revolved around that purpose, and that is not a healthy purpose. So it's important to have a healthy purpose in life and have goals and have a healthy self-image and have your own identity, which became a huge issue for me uh, when my brother Mark became famous. And uh, and it wasn't, obviously this isn't his fault. I mean, it's on all of us to find our own selves. And, but uh, I was somebody at that point, even at that point was already heavily into drugs and alcohol and didn't know who I was. So it became easy to be, Oh wow! Okay, if I'm if I'm Mark Cuban's brother, uh, the girls will like me. The you know I get free drugs. I go to the bars, go to the clubs. 
and be this person I wasn't because the real Brian was this, this, this shy little boy. And, uh, and, you know, and I became really just kind of a big douchebag on the Dallas party scene. And so, uh, you know, and all, and all of that while trying to practice law. Uh, I've done, I did cocaine, and I don't say this as badges of honor, it just is how it is an addiction. I mean, I did cocaine, I was doing cocaine in the bathrooms of the federal courthouse, the George Allen courthouse, the state courthouse. Uh, I remember uh, I showed up at a TRO hearing. <laughs> I got a call for an ex parte TRO, and I already popped two Xanax after an all night flow fest of cocaine and alcohol. So I showed up, and I'm like, fortunately, it was a no brainer type thing, right? Where the judge just walked through it, and, but I'm like, <laughs> yes, okay, TRO denied. <laughs> but that's how it was. And, uh, uh, you know, the last trial, the last trial was a bench trial, it was not a big deal. And uh, I wasn't prepared. And I pulled over to the side of the road and snorted cocaine off my hand because I had a panic attack driving to the courthouse. That was my life as a lawyer. And I eventually, uh, uh, I did PI. I did PI work for a long time, and uh, I was a, an unethical lawyer. I walked the bounds. I, you know, I crossed the lines. I basically developed a ring. I was doing a lot of soft tissue, uh, low impact chiropractic, mm -hmm. and I developed a kind of a ring of chiropractors. And this was back in the day when there, there were no cell phones. I had a pager, so, and and I carry around a roll of quarters in my car. So I'd get I'd get a page from the from one of my chiropractors, and uh, she'd say, "Brian, we have a fish." She literally called it a fish, and and so I you know I get the payphone. I go down there, and in my scuffed up shoes, my seer suit that I wore at my high school graduation, and I had a briefcase full of contingency agreements and letters of protection. In Texas, I don't know if they have those where you are, but they're letters where you guarantee the doctor's going to get paid out of the settlement. So you have to do you have to do that for them to treat them, right? And so I uh, I would sit there in the waiting room, and she would come out with the patient. Oh, Mr. Cuban, what are you doing here? Mr. Cuban is one of our top trial lawyers. Mr. Cuban's never tried a case to conclusion. Mr. Cuban will get you maximum settlement. Mr. Cuban will sell you down the river so he doesn't have to try a case. Even cut his fee, take no fee, so he doesn't have to try a case. Uh, it's just about money for drugs, money for partying. And that's the way I practice law. And I don't say that as something I'm proud of, but it's not as unusual as you might think when we talk about lawyers struggling with addiction and alcohol, alcohol use disorder, alcoholism. Uh, you know, you're, 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 you may, you're probably wondering, well, has this guy ever been disbarred or License suspended, no, but it wasn't for a lack of trying. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you go back to the Texas Bar Journal, you're in New York, right? The New York Bar Journal. And we have, you know, the unfortunately, the unfortunate moniker, the pages of shame in the back, where you, you go in the back and you have all the lawyers who have been disciplined, disbarred, you know, and all those things. And a good, a healthy percentage of those are going to correlate to drug and alcohol issues. So uh, it's it's amazing my name never got got uh, put back there. Uh, you know what's funny? When you're first admitted to the bar, at least when I was, it was now almost a decade ago, you are required to sit through an addiction movie, a seminar, they give you a CLE that that that, that you get one credit 
something. And you look around the room. I remember this moment clearly. You look around the room and, and me and all the other folks around me were just half asleep waiting to get out of there. Um, and it's so funny because now, again, 10 years in about, I can understand these things. Uh, fortunately, I don't suffer from anything myself, but I do understand why the stresses of the profession, dealing with clients, the pressure can lead one down that road. It's it's something that the profession doesn't seem to have accounted for, really. Well, I mean, things are changing and, and people still fall asleep at those, right? That's why it's done differently now. That's why they bring in people to tell stories and they, there's more of a storytelling focus on that. You know, when they, when uh, the law school, uh, you know, when the, when they come, when uh, the New York, the lawyer's assistance program or the New York uh, city or the state lawyer's assistance program goes into law schools and stuff. Yeah, there's more of a storytelling focus than just, you know, Bueller, Bueller and people, you know, drool coming out of their mouths. Uh, but I talk, I talk to lawyers who can't even remember it. I mean, they don't know or who don't know uh, that the lawyer's assistance program even could tell you what they do. And that's unfortunate. And that's not the fault of the lawyer's assistance program. Uh, I used to sit on the uh, advisory committee for TLAP-Rs. But uh, things are changing, though, especially in big law, especially in especially with the larger firms with the within the AM law ranks, because we have the we have the uh, American Bar Association a wellness pledge that so many law firms have signed on to, government agencies, corporation, corporate law departments, and so there is more of a structure now for uh, law firms to uh, put in place, you know. Uh, put in place structures where lawyers can take advantage of these different things if they're struggling and understand that they can seek help and come back to their jobs. Uh, but that's, you know, whether they walk the walk and talk the talk are two different issues. I've, I've spoken at many big law firms and uh, I'll get emails from associates saying that's all well and good, but, you know, they have me working, you know, doing this many hours a week you know, working this many hours and, you know, and it's, uh, it's just not the way they actually function and based despite what they say about what's there for us. And so you have that disconnect there. And so that can be an issue, but you get below big law and you get into the medium size and the boutique and it's much more of an issue, much more of an issue where profit margins are, are more razor, uh, where lawyers are more commoditized, uh, where, uh, there's a lot more stigma and less awareness of mental health issues that, you know, when you get, when you drop below that. And then, and I've talked to mid-sized firm lawyers, partners, named partners said, who've told me right up front, look, it's all well and good. But uh, if one of my lawyers is struggling, I want him, her, or they to get help. But uh, that's not on me. That's not on me. If they're not willing to step up, I'll replace them. Uh, and then, you know, we push aside the ADA issues there based on what they know and everything, but, uh, that, but that's an attitude, that's an attitude. And that's, I've never heard that attitude expressed, you know, and I, and you never would in the, uh, AMLAW ranks, cause it would be just, if it got out, it'd be disastrous. Although I suspect there are those attitudes exist, but, uh, I've heard it more than once in the, uh, you know, firms below a hundred and, uh, and then you get below that and you get into the solos and the one, two, three person practice law 
uh, lawyers, and it's even you, you add all kinds of other issues. You add social social isolation. Uh, you add really uh, you don't have the backstops to uh, you know if a lawyer needs to get help, who's going to take his or her their their pay caseload, and and so a lawyer may be uh, pr feel pressured them you know feel pressured to just you know find their own way. We're a profession of thinkers, right? We can think our way out of these things which generally isn't true. Uh, and so you have that. And even the, the, the lawyers assistance programs do the best they can, whether it's New York or Texas, to, you know, to get out there and get into the smaller firms and say, look, you know, you can, you can, you can get help. It's not going to get out to, you know, it's confidential. And just as importantly, to the, to the colleagues, getting out to the colleagues of the uh, demographic that make up the majority of practice, right? It's not big law, <laughs> it's not medium law, it's the solos and the, and the, and the uh, you know, quote unquote mom and pop shops and, and uh, let them know it's okay to, you're not ratting out your colleague. It's an act of concern to call the lawyer's assistance program and say, you know, my friend, my colleague is struggling. Because I talk to lawyers who even today still don't know that it's not uh, that it won't get out, that they uh, are the ones who reported it. And I mean, I'm talking lawyers who have been practicing, respected lawyers who have been practicing for years and decades, I, you know, who have these fears that if they make the call, it's going to come out that they made the call. I remember I was uh, back in the early days when I was giving talks, I uh, spoke to the Dallas Bar Association and it, and it was specifically about the Texas Lawyers Assistance Program. And it's confident. I talked about the confidentiality. And afterwards, this seasoned, uh, seasoned civil litigation lawyer comes up to me. He says, "Brian, I know what you're talking about. I hear you, but you're wrong. It's, if 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 I if it comes if I go to them, it's going to get out, and careers can be ruined. They've ruined careers. This you know the state bar. Well, the state bar is different from the lawyers assistance program. Let's you know. Although sometimes it can be." You know, they're in the same office and this and that. It can be kind of nebulous and that and that creates some of the fear and stigma, right? Because they seem, you know, you can have at least the appearance of intertwining. But, uh, and I said, well, how do you know that? Well, another lawyer told me. Well, how does he know that? Well, I think he heard about a lawyer who something happened. So you're a seasoned civil litigation attorney coming to me with a guy told a guy who told a guy. That's that's the stigma that still exists for many. Why are lawyers so reluctant to come forward? Are they more reluctant to come forward than folks in the general public? Because these things are stigmatized in the general public as well. Obviously, is sure. that well, in the law? I think I I think for any time I think when we, when we take it macro, right? Let's take it the macro. Uh, Anytime you have a job and you're you're afraid of losing your job, you're going to be there's going to be a, you're going to be afraid, right? You don't know, and so uh, no lawyers aren't unique in that regard uh, about losing a job. But lawyers, or whether it's doctors or dentists or whatever, we are unique in that we have to have this thing from the state bar that we have to have this little number from the state bar, and it, when you go online, it has to say eligible to practice law, and so you know, our ticket, right? So that's a, something that's unique to our profession, you know, unique to, uh, not unique to just us, doctors and stuff, but to certain professions where 
lose that ticket, you're done. And that can create a lot of a lot of fear. And uh, I think that is one reason, right? Another is fear of repercussions, uh, losing clients, fear of promotion. I a lot of the same fears that you see in other and you know other places. But again, we are dependent on that piece of paper, you know, that metaphorical piece of paper to practice. And uh, we are, I think, naturally, there is a natural fear of the state bar, right? Whose job isn't to, uh, the, job, the state bar wants you to get help, but their job is not to protect you necessarily. It is to protect the public. It's, uh, you know, right. that's the state bar's job. So... And they may dispute, you know, someone from the state bar watch and say, well, that's not true. Well, you know, it, it, yeah, it, it, whether, it, it, it's the perception it, whether whether we can have whether we can dice that out or not. OK, but it's it is the perception. And uh, you're a disciplinary you are a disciplinary authority. What kind of therapies or clinical approaches work for lawyers in your experience from what you've seen? Are those things different? Are they so fact-specific that it's tough to... It's fact-specific, and I'm not a doctor. The only thing I'm an expert in is my own story, right? I can tell you what worked for me. There are as many paths to recovery as there are people. Uh, you know, for me, uh, I, I started out in 12-step. My I, I, I'm Therapy in 12-step. And for those who don't know what 12-step are, there are different ones, but AA is the most well-known. There's NA and some other ones if you're... Uh, if you prefer Christian, if you prefer Christian-based, there's a Celebrate Recovery, which is 12-step Christian-based therapy. But there's also harm reduction. If people with opioid use disorder, you see that more with Suboxone and Methadone, things that are still very, you know, very cringy and uh, in, hush-hush in, in the uh, legal community, right? I mean, tell a, uh, you know, tell a, you, you're, you're struggling, tell a, a judge that you're, you know, you need to be on uh, Suboxone, you might depending on where you are and the progressiveness of the uh, jurisdiction, uh, it's more progressive in New York for sure, less progressive in Texas. Uh, it just depends. But we the, the legal profession is a very 12-step based uh, recovery you know, profession, right? Uh, that tends to be the default. Uh, and, that's what, and that's what I want. Abstinence was my, my path. That was the only path offered to me when I got sober uh, 16 and a half years ago. Uh, in therapy, uh, and so I did that, and it is, you know, it, and, and, and it worked fine for me. But for others, it just depends on the person. If you, it just depends on the person. I don't judge any pathway. I mean, if standing on your head keeps you sober, do that. It's not evidence based, right? But uh, you know, it's not evidence based. But uh, you know, I don't judge any pathway. What I what I want to see is people, you know able to lead their best lives. And if that means your best lives, abstinent from alcohol and cocaine, do that. Uh, I don't judge it. If, if you need Suboxone or be on methadone, uh, do that. I don't judge it. So it's going to be dependent on the person. How much of this is on law schools, right? Law school is typically three years still. Um, the last year, while interesting, right? You're taking art law and sports law and other things. Um, how much of that should perhaps be substituted to teach lawyers how to operate in the profession and how to deal with these kinds of issues? That's a great question. And you have to remember, when I when I went to law school, it was a different animal, right? I went to Pitt Law, 
and we had hard alcohol ragers in the student lounge with a DJ on Fridays. You know, I think it was once once a month on Fridays. And so that, you know, that wouldn't fly nowadays. Uh, we didn't we didn't have a dean of students then. That dean of students who tend to be the point mental health point person uh, at law schools, and uh, you know there are a relatively new development in the history of law schools. If you if you take the entire history, so law schools, in my experience, I've spoken at them all over the country, are doing a much better job. And there's only so much you can do, right? You have to be pragmatic. A dean of students will tell me, look, we can't tell our students not to drink. We don't control these organizations. What we can do is, you know, we, 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 we set parameters on what you can do on our premises. We offer the, we offer things like, uh, you know, certain laws, a lot, some law schools now have onsite counselors, right? They, they budgeted for onsite counselors who have office hours. That, that's that's a great thing, and which didn't exist back in my day. Uh, they have meditation rooms. They have these different things. Uh, they have you know bar exam puppy days, and all of these things. Whether you you can argue they're evidence based as stress relievers or not, but if a student de-escalates as a result of being able to pet puppies and all those things, and and have a place to go and, and de stress, that's a good thing too. So law schools are coming around. Now, in terms of practical aspects of the third year, yes, I think there can be more of an emphasis on the practice of law, you know, the fundamental practice of law and the stresses that come with it. And it would be silly of me to speculate on what laws, you know, every law school offers, but I think it is important to offer those options rather than just the mandatory course on drugs and alcohol, right? How closely related is substance abuse and mental health? Oh, there's a, there's a strong, I mean, I'm not going to go into correlation numbers, but there's other than to say there's a strong correlation, an incredibly strong correlation between uh, substance use disorder and mental health uh, and, you know, and, and struggling with mental health because a lot of people use substances to, you know, to uh, ameliorate that, uh, if I said that word right, but uh, sure. There, there is an absolute, there is a strong correlation between depression and substance use. There's a strong correlation between eating disorders and substance use, which I've also struggled with, uh, bulimia. Uh, there, there is a strong correlation between bipolar disorder and substance use and, and anxiety. Sure, it's, all, I mean, it's, yes, there, there is, which is why there's this, and, and certainly trauma, right? Underlying trauma. There's a strong correlation between underlying trauma and substance use. And a lot of times in my, in my personal experience, again, I'm not a doctor, when I, you know, work with uh, a lot of lawyers and just, you know, listening to their stories and, uh, you know, there's often, uh, you know, more times than not, there's underlying trauma. Again, it's not my, I just listen, it's not my job to dig out trauma, nor is it appropriate. It can, it can do harm. So I, I, I'm, a, I'm a listener and, uh, you know, just try to, I try to be a wing person and guiding people to counselors, to resources, you know, and uh, giving them the facts about lawyers assistance programs versus tropes and uh, stigma and conspiracy theories, give them the facts. But 
somebody has to, that's all you can do, right? You can lay a path, you can lay a road. There's this road, there's this road, there's this road. Uh, this road, this road offers these resources. This road is more blow and more drink. This road offers this, which do you want to take? Uh, I can't force. Uh, yeah, I, 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 there's one lawyer that I've been uh, working with, uh, you know, just uh, trying to uh, bring them to a place of seeking help, right? And uh, he passed away from uh, liver failure just not too long ago, uh, secondary to severe alcohol use disorder. So th that that's the struggle too, because again, we're a thinking profession and in law school, it starts, it's a kick the can profession. You're a thinking profession, plus you're young and you have the kick the can syndrome. Okay, I'm struggling with alcohol or I'm struggling with cocaine or Adderall. Uh, and, but I can think my way out of this. If I seek help, it's gonna affect my bar application. Uh, and, uh, you know, my, my bar exam application. So I'll just kick this can down the road. And then I'll deal with it as a lawyer. Well, you get to be a lawyer and you develop coping mechanisms versus uh, therapeutic mechanisms, right? The coping, you develop uh, harmful coping mechanisms instead of dealing with the uh, problem. So now you're a lawyer who's struggling with cocaine or alcohol or your eating disorder. And, oh, well, I'm still young. I'll kick this can even further. And what happens, is, I see this in law firms, is the Peter principle of addiction kicks in. And I was just talking to a lawyer the other day about this who, who identified with this. Uh, you go in and when you're on your game, you're going, you're in big law, you're, 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 at the, or you're at that boutique and you're just killing it or even private practice uh, solo and you're, you're working, you're, you're working long hours and you're giving a buck 25 for a dollar bill, right? You're billing it, you're, you're giving a buck 25 of, of work for a dollar bill, for the dollar you build. But then all of a sudden it's about, you're even breaking even. Then all of a sudden you're only given 80%. Then all of a sudden you're only given 60%. But what happens is, you know, as that baseline keeps drop, dropping, and the Peter principle is we work to our level of incompetence, we, we strive to learn more, we take information, and the level is supposed to keep rising. It's how you advance in an organization. Uh, by, you know, by working to your level of incompetence, by, by sponging in more knowledge so you can keep rising. So that level keeps rising, but the level keeps dropping. And what happens? You kneel under it. You kneel under it. So you can keep telling yourself that you're giving a dollar for a dollar. And people, you know, I can speak for myself and I've seen it anecdotally. People doing that tend to have the worst self-awareness self ever. Uh, when you're in the middle of addiction, self-awareness tends not to be a strength. So you're like, yes, I'm working hard, but everyone else is, they're whispering, oh, you know, he's missed this. It's not returning his calls. He, you know, showed up disheveled at a hearing. He's late, coming in late for hearings, uh, showed up late for court. Uh, then all of a sudden there's malpractice. Then all, then all of a sudden uh, something worse, right? Where the disciplinary board is involved and, uh, where there were all the, where, when you look back, there were all these signs. There were all these signs of the Peter principle of addiction at work. But everyone around you, the colleagues, no one's, everyone's afraid to say something, right? Whether it's in court or should I say something? He looks, I don't know. 
now don't get me wrong. I know lawyers who have gone up to someone in a courtroom and said, look, uh, you need to, you know, I'll agree to a postponement. You need to deal with this before the judge breathalyzes you right here. Uh, this is now, this is beyond, you know, you are now a danger to the profession. And I've had lawyers unafraid to go up and have that conversation right in the courtroom. And I know judges who have had that conversation right in the courtroom. There are lawyers who have been breathalyzed right in the courtroom. And that is when the Peter, that is when the Peter principle has collapsed, right? Where there's no more, you can't kneel. It's, 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 it's concrete on concrete. There's no level and there's nowhere to go. And you've been squished by the Peter principle of addiction. And now it's too late. Now the consequences have caught up with the problem. And in a thinking profession, it can be a bear, you know, trying to bring people to a place where they recover at the highest point, not the lowest point. How much of addiction is nature versus nurture? Uh, I hate that. I hate, I hate that, that, that comparison. Not, it's not your fault, but, uh, trauma, 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 body keeps the score. I said trauma, uh, has a huge, uh, trauma has a strong, strong correlation. Uh, whether, uh, genetics, genetics plays a role, uh, undoubtedly how much I have no idea, but genetics plays a role. Trauma plays a role. And when people start giving, you know, are P are there lawyers who are just strictly triggered by stress? Absolutely. No history. I have no history of addiction in my family. Uh, but I have a history of, uh, uh, trauma. Uh, and negative body image and a lot of different things. But uh, yeah, I mean, if you, if you talk to somebody and you get their history, I mean, there are, there are, there can be, there are generally consistent building blocks, but they're not all, you know, you can't parse, well, it's this or it's this or it's this. How many variables are there in life as you go through life, right? But so I prefer to look at it that way versus that kind of generalization. Trauma plays a role. Genetics plays a role. Environment plays a role. You know, so uh, if we can figure out if we could figure out the exact uh, specifics of you know percentages, we'd win the Nobel Prize. This may seem like a silly question. Do you ever see practicing law in your future again, or is it writing and speaking and what you're doing? I'm now? 62 years old. I'm not going back. Or I'll be, what will I be? Well, I'll be 62 in January. I'm not going back. I have no desire. I never wanted to be a lawyer. You know why I went to law school? It's kind of a funny story. I, I was a, at Penn State. I was a, a criminal justice major. I wanted to be a cop. That would have worked out well. I'd have been the first guy in the evidence room trading out the Manitou for the blow. Uh, but I was also in, at Penn State. I was, by my sophomore year, I was an alcoholic and I was struggling with an eating disorder. And I'm sitting in the, uh, but I, you know, I did, but I was uh, also able to do well in my grades and, and get through. And I had different coping me mechanisms. I became a long distance runner uh, because I felt so unlovable. I said, I just spend my life alone and running is the one thing you can do alone, right? One of the things you can do alone and uh, get out, get away from people. And so I'm sitting in the placement office. Again, we're, I'm reading through these job pamphlets uh, that the cops, that the police departments would send 
And again, this is before computers. And there are two guys sitting next to me. Uh, and they're talking about uh, guys from Pittsburgh in my major. And they're talking about taking a law school admission test. I had never considered it. Never. I had, knew, had no lawyers in my family. Uh, didn't know any lawyers. And I start listening to them and it occurred to me. I can, if I, if I go to law school, if I get in, I'll, I'll be, I get three more, for three more years, I can engage in the same behaviors that, and not have to answer to anyone that got me through four years at Penn State, right? I was running, I was binging and purging. I, yes, uh, yes, I, guys do struggle with eating disorders. And believe it or not, uh, according to a law student survey done about five or six years ago, about 30% of uh, law students suffer from di uh, disorder, deal with disordered eating, which can turn into an eating, that is not the same thing as an eating disorder, but can easily advance to an eating disorder if not dealt with. Uh, and so I looked at it in terms of coping. I can go to law school and engage, and for three more years, not have to face the world and engage in the behaviors that allowed me to exist. And that was it, just exist at Penn State. And for those reasons, I went to law school. I never wanted to be a lawyer, never. And I didn't do well at Pitt, obviously. You can't, you actually have to study, which I didn't. I was drinking, I was binging and purging, I was running, all more important to me. Uh, and uh, graduated way near the bottom of the class. But the great thing, you know, there was kind of a serendipitous moment uh, going on two and a half years ago now. Uh, they invited me back to uh, keynote the commencement, the pit law commencement, as somebody who had turned his life around from drugs and alcohol. So I wore the cap and gown for the first time because I didn't even bother going to graduation. I was so ashamed. But uh, yeah, so it's uh, it, was, it was an interesting ride. With the Cuban, I really appreciate the time. Thank you. No, no problem. But hey, recovery is possible. The only, I'll say the, the only requirement, there's only one requirement for recovery, be above ground and recovery is possible.